We have uh, two supplemental readings today for our scripture reading. The first comes from Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, and the second is 1 Timothy chapter 6, 6 through 19. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnesses the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this command without spot, blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you have granted to us to know you through your word. We thank you, Father, for opening our ears so that we might hear, opening our eyes, that we might see a glimpse of you and your glory from it, and opening our hearts that we might be receptive to it. Grant us faith now through the hearing of your word, so that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We have one more letter to read. As news from heaven to these seven churches. It's addressed to the church at Laodicea. Laodicea is a rich church, and its sense is that it needs nothing. It's materialistic. That's why I chose those two supplementary passages that talk about the love of money. Now, the proverb about, let me be neither rich nor poor, rich thinking I, I need nothing, or too poor that we're tempted to steal. Interesting Proverbs. But before we get into the meat of this letter to Laodicea, I want to say just a, a few 
kind of summary things. First, I want to tell you what a blessing it has been to be with you at these two months and hope that God has used our time with you in the preaching of his word, this application of this letter that often is ignored. It's either overly fascinating to the church, and people are all caught up in revelation schemes, or it's ignored. I hope that looking at these churches has been a blessing to you. Secondly, I'm excited about Nick coming. One, you know him real well. He has already served as pulpit supply. It was really interesting to be here when you took the vote uh, to call him and, and just the, the response. It wasn't like, oh, we've been with him for one weekend as the search committee presented him and we hope he's good. You, you just, it landed well. I do know that, that he's young. He's uh, in, in, interning right now, will be ordained at our next uh, Presbytery meeting, actually approved for ordination and then ordained and installed uh, in this church. And it did remind me of uh, a passage that I want to read to you because here I am, the old guy, passing the baton on to the young guy. But remember, I was 27 years old when I first came to Sycamore Presbyterian Church. So it's 38 years, it took 38 years to make me look like this. <laughs> Plus the church that made me lose my head. No, I shouldn't say that. The Apostle Paul writes Timothy as the young pastor, the next pastor coming up. And he says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 9 and following, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance and for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. That is of those who believe. And then Paul goes personal with Timothy, the older apostle, telling this young pastor, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. This is the process of ordination. Uh, yes, he's a young man, younger than most ruling elders are when they begin as ruling elders. And I remember when I was 27, I was only 27 two weeks before I turned you know, 28 and became uh, older and wiser. But I remember if, if there were a, a disagreement or, or something that you know, somebody wanted in the church, uh, hearing an older guy say, he's green, He's wet behind the ears. It's interesting when Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you. The ESV, I believe, even says despise you. Is that right? This despise you, if I remember correctly. One of the translations trans translates it that strongly. How can you control other people's attitudes towards you? You can't. It's don't be intimidated when they do. God has called you to this purpose. 
But I recognize today a unique opportunity to speak to the congregation that is calling him in to recognize what God has done in Nick's life and in his wife's life and his family's life as they're going through this process to be recognized and affirmed by those who are leaders in the church that God has gifted him for this calling. And I call on you to apply what Paul says to Timothy. Don't be intimidated about it. Well, recognize and and respect what God has done in his life. There is a lot that he has to learn by experience, but as an old guy, that's not, I'm I'm not going to be condescending to the young guys. I heard not too long ago that geniuses uh, generally make their uh, world-renowned discoveries in their 20s, and it's downhill from there. You're the sharpest by that time. And then the application of the clarity of what you have learned grows in wisdom and how to apply it over time. But there's a sharpness when things click and are clear and for those who are young. So I call you as a congregation before Nick gets here, he doesn't even hear it from me. To just work things through with Nick Uh, Bless God and bless him uh, as you work with him as he has devoted much of his uh, life thus far to preparation for ministry and the confirmation of this call. I thought that was worth sharing with you. Now, that is not a prophecy that this is just going to be a golden age for the church. Ministry is hard. It's not easy. If you look at the seven churches that are addressed that we have been addressing around 100 AD, and you see these churches and think they are typical of the church at large, does the church look lovely or not? The church is full of problems from the start. You ever heard people say, we just need to be a New Testament church? Like the Corinthians who had a man sleeping with his father's wife? Like the Galatians who were going turning to a different gospel, like these seven churches with their varying degrees of heresy, tolerant, or even dominant, the church that was called dead. The first was doctrinaire, this last one's materialistic. The first one is told, if you don't repent, I'm going to come take your candlestick away from you. You'll cease to be a church. And this one, Jesus says through John, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. The church is always going to struggle in this fallen world because we need redemption. We are redeemed and we can grow in righteousness, but it's, it's always a work in progress until Christ comes again. I remember when I was at Sycamore for a couple of years, a man came to the church. He said, it might have been four or five years. I can't remember exactly when he first came, but we were still meeting in the school. He said, I'm looking for a church that is 100% committed to Christ. I said, if you find it, don't join it. He said, why? He said, because if you have 50 people that are 100% committed to Christ, what should they be doing regarding Christians who need discipleship, who are only half-hearted? What if every one of those 50 drew in another Christian that was half-hearted in his walk with Christ? Wouldn't the 50 be doing what they're called to do? 
And you'd walk into that church and say, half these people aren't really committed to Christ. And then what if the 50 that were committed and faithful were reaching out to those who needed Christ and inviting them to church? Suppose they were successful enough that every one of them brought somebody who was not even a Christian to church. You could walk into that church and say, a third of these people aren't even Christians. That's the church to join. As long as there's a dynamic of those who are committed to Christ and to his word, discipling those who need to grow. And we all need to grow. We all fall into that category. But we're at different stages of our journey and committed to reaching out to those who need Christ in the first place. Look for the messy church where the dynamic of the gospel is going on and join that church. When I look at these seven churches, the church is a messy church, isn't it? But Jesus, we learned in our introduction to Revelation, is walking amongst the lampstands. Like Jesus, like God, walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. There's a fellowship there. And Jesus loves his bride, the church. How many of you have ever thought to yourself or heard someone say, yeah, I, I don't care for the church. I just, I just don't like the church. I, I'm, I have my faith. And it might even be real evangelical faith, but because they've been so burned by some hurt that happened in the church. I love Jesus, but I don't care for his church. Do you know what you're really saying? Saying, Jesus, I love you, but your bride's a dog. The bride of Christ is the church. Love the church as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Try that line with Graham right now. Go up and say, bride, Graham, I, I love you. You're, you're great, but your bride, she's beautiful. I can't even say. <laughs> can't even say what people say about the bride of Christ. This is the church expressed in its seven different forms, and it's a messy church that needs uh, Jesus is walking you know, among the lampstands, among his church. That doesn't mean that every person in the church is a Christian, but still love the church. And I hope that as we've been going through these seven churches, you have a sense of application. If the shoe fits, wear it. There are lots of different places that I do identify with the temptations that we have as a church. We could be doctrinaire in our denomination and lose the love for God in return for his love for us expressed in Christ. We lose our love for each other because we're more contentious about uh, the doctrines. Or we can not care about doctrine and be good for nothing like this church in Laodicea who's happy and content with their materialism. Or we can tolerate varying degrees of heresy, like the middle churches. I don't think we identify as much with the church that is persecuted and about to suffer even more, the church that is so weak. Perhaps sometimes we in our mindset think, here we are, a small church, you know, we're not, you know, famous, nobody even, you know, how many people can recognize the name of our church in the PCA? Some maybe, and we, and we feel weak and, and small. You are dearly loved by Christ. You are a part of the bride of Christ, and he gave his life 
for you. So love the church and remember that that includes this congregation of the church. Love, love each other. And just delight in that. That's why it's been such a pleasure for us after I retired to visit first down at West End and Hopewell and now here to see the body of Christ in its larger expressions. So I thought that those were worth, um, it's just kind of summary things before going into this last letter. The final overview thing, I don't know how many of you picked up this uh, outline of Revelation. This is a teaser, okay? Uh, this is when I've taught all the way through the book of Revelation, just to give you a, a, an understanding of the whole thing. We've just focused on the first seven uh, churches, the first, the first section of it. But let me just explain the outline so that you can understand the teaser, at least. You see, whoops, I was holding it upside down. And that you can see that you could, you could see that really clearly, couldn't you? The uh, book of Revelation covers the period from the first coming of Christ and his ascension into heaven until he comes again. And it covers it six times. The implied seventh is the new heaven and the new earth that goes on forever. The uh, sections are, are very easy to see because they come up to an end after the seven churches. There's no mention of anything happening at the end of the age. The second group of seven is the seven seals. And when you come up to the end of that stage, there's silence in heaven for half an hour. That's every mouth is stopped. That's the beginning of judgment. No more excuses. You just stand before God. The third group of seven is the seven uh, trumpets. It reminds us of, of Jericho warnings. And when you get to the end of that, each wave advances up the shore just a little bit further to the second coming of Christ. It's like the waves coming in and the tide coming in at the same time. Each wave advances a little bit further. And after the silence in heaven, there's praise to God for final judgment. He's finally come to make everything right. The next, uh, the next grouping is the great plot of history. The number seven doesn't come into uh, that section that so much. Some people have counted out the seven figures, and, and they still see it as a group of seven, but that's not emphasized in, in Revelation. So I didn't emphasize it uh, here in this outline. But that's what makes it absolutely clear that Revelation uh, is talking about the first coming of Christ until the second coming of Christ. You have the woman who's about to give birth and, and the dragon wants to devour the birth of this one that is snatched up to heaven and, and, and saved. And so Satan goes to war with the rest of the children of the women. It goes to war against the church. The first coming of Christ, God used Herod to try to kill baby, the baby Jesus at his birth. He tried to kill him all along the way. Finally succeeded in putting Christ on, on the cross only to have his satanic jaw drop when he realized in what he thought would be his victory was the victory of God in conquering sin and swallowing it whole and breaking its power and raising Jesus from the dead. But Satan thought would be his victory was his defeat. So he's mad. This is the one time that I think you can say this without it being swearing or taking anything wholly in vain to say Satan is mad as hell and going around seeking whom he may devour. That's why ministry in this fallen world is not easy. We have an adversary, 
of the devil that will love to get us tripped up with, with God, with each other, you know, with his word. We need to be conscious of that. So may God has won the victory over that, and we need to be aware of the struggle until Christ comes again. Then you have the seven bowls of, of wrath. It's the pouring out of God's wrath. Uh, at the, oh, at the end of the great plot in history, you have the harvest and wine press of wrath that prepared. And the, the, the end of the next series of seven, the city of man destroyed. And finally, in chapter 17 through 22, you have the final destinies of the major figures in Revelation. And it culminates in the new heaven and the new earth. I know that Revelation has become an obscure book because there are so many different scenarios that people you know, try to, to, to outline it with. But I think it's really pretty simple. Jesus came the first time to redeem us. We still live in this fallen world until he comes again. The troubles of, of a, a fallen world are well played out in this book, but there's a final outcome when Christ comes again and restores us to the new heaven and the new earth as the city of Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, the Garden of Eden, which is now populated to become a city, comes down to earth, and there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying. Everything is, is restored. That's the story of the Bible, and we enter into life everlasting with risen bodies as God created us to live with him forever in glory. So uh, that's the overview of Revelation. I wanted to tease you into studying it more, not being turned off by all the different uh, debates. And I hope that this outline will be a teaser to, to look into it you know, through this lens. I think it'll maybe make more sense to you uh, as you do it. I'm sure that tell Nick that three years from now, not his first Bible study, three years from now, you want to go through it with him and uh, understand it better. Why? This is the book that has a promised blessing. It's, the blessing applies to the whole Bible. But why is it in this book? Perhaps God was aware that this would be a book that many people would either make so much of and make it so complicated or ignore. Now, blessed is the one who reads this aloud and blessed is the one who hears it and puts it into practice. Okay, let's read this. It's not going to be hard to go through this letter to the church in Laodicea. It's chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is the only letter that doesn't refer to a description of Christ that is established in chapter 1. It's just simple and straightforward. The Hebrews would have understood the amen as God's final word, that it's truth, so be it. But in case there were readers that didn't understand what amen meant, these are the words of the faithful and true witness. Amen, amen. The ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I think the King James said spew. I always loved that word, spew you out of my mouth. When I was in youth group, uh, we had the summer uh, youth groups at, uh, at different homes. And when it came to our home, 
Uh, I was a sophomore in high school, and there's a very extrovertish, talented, guitar-playing, singing a girl who was um, just confident in herself and the kind that you just love to play a practical joke on. Okay, so I served up, and we had uh, apple cider uh, for our beverage. And I put in one glass apple cider vinegar. Looked just the same. And I made sure that Harriet got the vinegar. And she just spewed it out of her mouth. Every time I read this passage, I have that picture in my mind. And Harriet was fine with it. She, she loved the attention. She was the kind to play a practical joke. And we were good friends. Okay. And I was, yes, that kind of boy. Now, why is this uh, description of the church at Laodicea? And what does it mean? At first, I was taught, and at first uh, impression, you might think it refers to spiritual fervor. I wish you were all for me or all against me. But isn't it kind of hard to think that Jesus would rather us be like the Pharisees who demanded his crucifixion than just lukewarm? Actually, when you understand the geography of Laodicea, it turns into something different. In nearby Heropolis, there were hot springs, and the hot springs were medicinal. People went there, and the hot springs helped relax the muscles. It just makes you feel better. We still know that from the hot uh, baths and hot spas. And in Colossae, the next town uh, up, it, there were cold springs. Those were cool and refreshing and invigorating. At Laodicea, they had a problem with water supply. They had to import it uh, from the south, I believe it was, and they, they built an aqueduct. And when it, it got to the city, it was just, it had been in the heat, just kind of not hot, but that sicky, warm Florida water. You taste the Florida water? It's near Sulphur Springs, and probably worse than that. It was known for its bad water, and it was vulnerable because the water, if anybody ever wanted to conquer Laodicea, they could just come over and blast up the aqueduct, and they wouldn't have any water. So it was a vulnerability. So if you're a Laodicea and then you read this letter, the hot, hot springs are good for something, the cold springs are good for something, our water is good for nothing message to this church is, I wish you were good for something, hot or cold. Instead, you're good for nothing. Why? That explanation is right here. Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Laodicea was known for its, uh, its textiles. It had it was, uh, an area that, where there were sheep there's a lot of grazing grounds for sheep, and they had developed a kind of soft black wool from their sheep. And it was highly desirable wool. So it was becoming a merchant city because of its business, it attracted banking. So banking became a big industry in that city. And in its place, uh, in this place from uh, roads, I think from the east, they were importing uh, a different uh, things where they made ear ointments and eye salve. And they taught medicine. They had a medical school in the city. So textiles, banks, 
and medical school, what Laodicea was known for. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, there's a definite article before wretched. What's the translation to say? But you're the wretch. It's, it's just somehow has more punch to it. I once was lost. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's not just an adjective describing me. It's who I am. Saved a wretch like me. You're wretched, pitiful, miserable, needing of mercy. That's what that word uh, means. Poor, blind, and naked. Notice how that corresponds with what uh, Laodicea is known for. Banking? No, you're really poor. Blind? That eye sad that you're so proud of? You're really spiritually blind. And naked? Those textiles you're famous for? You're really naked before God. I counsel you to buy from me Gold refined in the fire. Does that not call to mind the Corinthians passage about wood, hay, stubble, and gold, silver, precious stones? Wood, hay, stubble is burned in the fire of judgment. Only that which has eternal value remains. So it's not saying you can buy God's favor with your money. You're missing the point of the illustration there. Saying invest yourself in that which is eternal and not find your sufficiency in that which is passing so that you can become rich, spiritually rich. And white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. White clothes, instead of the the black wool that they were so proud of, the white clothes always signifies the righteousness of Christ given to us. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. If you were a Laodicean, you would not miss the point of each of these three things. The spiritual rich, riches of Christ, the spiritual covering of the righteousness of Christ, and the spiritual sight to see what is really true and eternal. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. There's a tender touch here. Lest we begin to fall off into a cynicism about the church that I was talking about earlier, that the church is so disgusting, you're about to spew the church out of your mouth. Leave God the place of judgment. Leave it to him. But notice the touch of God in his grace and mercy. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Why is God speaking to this church in Laodicea this way? Because he wants them to realize their need and come to him. Because he loves his church. I believe he does love it collectively. There is a collective thing there that he cares about his bride when there are a lot of false sons in her pale. He still loves his church. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
When I was a teenager, I was trained in a method of evangelism that many of you may be familiar with, the four spiritual laws. And this verse was always a part of the conclusion of that. It's an evangelistic verse that we need to respond to Christ and open the door and, and receive him. We know with our you know, more full understanding of what God does that he gives us that faith. He gives us the change of heart, the new heart, where we want to open the door. But we do have to open the door. This is an evangelistic verse. I later heard somebody criticize the evangelistic use of this verse, saying this verse was addressed to the church, not to the world. I think that criticism misses the point. Because sometimes the church is the mission field. We're at church. Go out trying to be good citizens. We go through the right motions. We're not even concerned enough about doctrine to get the reputation of the church at Ephesus that's at least doctrinaire and zealous about good doctrine. We're just living life content because we think we have everything we need. And we're the mission field. When uh, my father, I'll conclude with this story because it's a wonderful thing to see when a church responds uh, like a mission field. When my, my father uh, was a minister and he came to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church in 1964. I was 10 years old and um, we, we moved to the mountain. And my father's first sermon was the first five words of the Bible. I think I mentioned this either to the, you as a church or to somebody in the church. In the beginning, God created. He knew that there were many who were not believers in the church. There were Christians in the church that were concerned about the drift in the church. And they called a pastor who had preached the word. That was the concern of the search committee instead of following the drift. My father knew when he accepted it, the PCA wasn't even there, that he needed to call the church to Christ. The church was the mission field. And his point was, if we can begin, if we can believe five words together, we won't have any problems. And he walked through the Bible until he got to the resurrection of Christ, which he knew many of the, one of their Sunday school classes taught that that was just a spiritual fact, not a historical reality. He said, but if God can create everything from nothing, he can raise Jesus from the dead. We won't have any problems. 1964 up to 1973. In 1973, a lot of young people uh, were starting to become young adults. were beginning to become Christians in the church. And as they became Christians, the session began to be concerned, and they called us a session meeting retreat. And the complaints at that session meeting where there's too much Bible in the church, our young people are becoming fanatics because many of the elders were not Christians. And they were threatened by the faith of these, their, their children, some of them, growing up in, in the church. They were threatened by it. And besides that, there was some charismatic element, too, that my father didn't buy into. But there was some crazy stuff going on. And um, after that retreat, my father got up in the pulpit the next Sunday. And he was walking up these steps to this high pulpit in this traditional uh, church. And he stopped halfway, and he turned to the congregation, and he said, I have a sermon prepared, but I don't think it would do any good. He said, what I need 
is for you to pray for me. And perhaps some of you would like to pray too. And so um, he, knelt, he knelt down on the steps of that church, that slate floor church. He hadn't contrived this. This was To try to do this as manipulation would be a horrible thing. But he was gripped with paralysis because he thought he can call the church to faith in Christ, but he was not called to be a dictator and to work against the session. And when the session was not liking what he believed was God's work, he didn't know what to do. And so he just needed prayer. Two-thirds of the church came up and they prayed. They started sharing prayer requests. I was in college and he called and said, you remember my mother explaining what happened and my father's chiming in with what he, what he said his need for prayer was. And, and I remember thinking, if two-thirds came forward, they were celebrating the two-thirds came forward to pray with him. I was thinking, there was one-third that didn't. It was awkward. And my mother then said, and your father forgot that we have a radio ministry. It just went silent. From that brokenness, uh, Session kind of got activated. They were going to fix the church. And an elder came to my father and said, George, I'm responsible for the annual uh, church renewal conference. They had a week of renewal, uh, not, every night meetings. And um, he said, do we have to have another preacher? Or can we do something different? This man, by his own testimony, was not a believer at the time. Later, in his obituary, he talked about his coming, his faith coming alive three years before his death. But God used that man for my father to be able to say, I've heard of something different. I participated in what was called the lay renewal in St. Louis. And we'll have a keynote speaker, yes, who'll be a preacher, but afterwards we'll break into small groups in the homes and we'll have lay people come in and just share their faith with the people in the homes. This man thought that was the best thing since sliced bread. Wasn't just going to be another preacher. He's kind of cynical about that. It was real people were going to come, but he didn't realize as they were inviting all these real Christians in, many of them charismatic and uh, just sharing their faith. The Holy Spirit was at work, and you can disagree with some theology things about the charismatic uh, movement, but the Spirit was at work here. And in those small groups, people started becoming Christians. And in the next year, there were, most of the elders became Christians in that church. God can do all his holy will. Now, here's a church that I grew up in. And I was in college before this renewal happened, although there were individuals that were wanting the church to become uh, more believing. And I was getting to know those. And, but my father built in me a love for the church for all its flaws and a prayer for the church when the church is a mission field. Can you have that kind of love for your church? Can you see problems in the church? Can you read about what's going on at General Assembly or have struggles here and still have a sense of, Jesus, this is your bride whom you love. And if there's need for evangelism, if the church is a mission field, remember Jesus is knocking on that door saying, if anyone opens the door, 
I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. That's the work of God. And it will continue until Jesus comes again. Praise God for that. And we might be in the middle of a, a valley of a wave, or we might be at the top of the crest and you know, there are different places in the church. But the work of God is amen, true and constant and faithful. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you feel, you know, this is a stage of hopefulness. You're about to start with the next pastor. But there'll be times that there are troughs, won't there? There'll be those times that come. When you're in that trough, try to remember this series and say, Lord Jesus, thank you that your bride is in your hands. You have redeemed her. Even when the church is a mission field, you can do a mighty, mighty work. And help me to love you, love your word, and love the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be at work in us to give us the kind of heart that glorifies you for your grace and mercy that begins first with us. There's no spiritual pride in us when we remember that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins, but you made us alive by your spirit to faith in Jesus. And if you can do that for us, you can do that for anyone. Let us remember that we struggle in this world with an adversary that would seek to raise up fakes, to muddy the waters, to tear us down. But our Savior has overcome him already. And though we suffer here for a little while, we have glory ahead of us. And Father, give us a kind of hope and patience and trust that we could be the peacemakers we talked about earlier because we found peace with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.